the mysterious vigilante is in the news again. A little more than two hours ago, in an 8th Avenue subway underpass, two men were shot. One died on the spot. The other managed to reach the street before he collapsed. He died shortly afterward in the hospital. Both had long criminal records. The vigilante himself may have been wounded. Good evening, Mr. Cursor. Or should I say, Mr. Vigilante. Welcome to Now Playing's Death Wish Retrospective Series. If a man really wants to protect what's his, he has to do it for himself. Hosted by Arnie. You're cocked, locked, and ready to rock. I'll say. Stuart. Well, he did seem a bit odd. Not only odd, the guy is crazy. It's that simple. And Jacob. I admire you. I'm a real fan. These podcasts contain detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. You believe in Jesus? Yes, sir. Well, you're going to meet him. Listener discretion is advised. No judge, no jury, no appeal, and no deals. It's showtime. Today we're discussing Death Wish 5, The Face of Death, starring Charles Bronson, Leslie Ann Down, Michael Parks, Saul Rubinick, directed by Alan A. Goldstein. This is your podcast host of Death, Arnie. This is Stuart. And this is the host, if he didn't say shit, would lose 90% of his vocabulary, Jacob. <laughs> Speaking of shit, let's talk about Death Wish 5. <laughs> is Alan Goldstein like just a step away from an Alan Smithy film? <laughs> He's a real person, believe it or not, and he comes from a theater background, and yeah. Oh, perfect for Death Wish, then. Yeah, I mean, this franchise will not die. I know some people probably thought we were done, because we took a couple of weeks off there to cover Jigsaw and Thor, but no, it's still going we got this installment that i don't think anybody knew that it came out i mean honestly this was a movie that wasn't supposed to happen bronson's next picture after death wish 4 was supposed to be a big special effects extravaganza horror movie called the Gollum, <laughs> if you can believe it that canon films was all excited it's gonna be as good as life force and it was about, like, if you know Jewish myth. Yes. Was he going to be the golem? Was he going to be the clay creature that you put the sign in his head? Depends on who you ask. The first poster that they put out there, it looked like he was going to play the golem. And then at a certain <laughs> point, he's the cop that's chasing the golem. Because probably Bronson was like, you want me to do what? <laughs> but they needed money in order to do that. And that was in short supply at Canon Films by the late 80s. At this point, they only had the budget to do two more Bronson pictures trying to dig out of the hole. They made a movie called Messenger of Death, which I rewatched, and they made another movie called Kanjidi, which I didn't watch. But Messenger of Death is surprisingly bloodless for a Charles Bronson movie. Well, I think we're going to say that about The Face of Death. Yeah, we'll talk about that, but that's not a canon film proper. This was still canon right at the end when all their big movies like Masters of the Universe and Over the Top weren't making money and they had paid way too much money for them. They turned to Bronson to be like, hey, you can help us with this debt problem. And Messenger of Death is not going to save them. First of all, they cast Bronson as a reporter, which no, he's a cop. He's a vigilante. <laughs> He's an architect. 
Well, but an architect pushed to be a killer. And then I think the model was Witness. You know, if you know that Harrison Ford movie, he ends up getting incorporated in an Amish community and solving a crime there. Here, it was with the Mormons, that Charles Bronson, he was infiltrating two fighting sects of Mormons, and then it ends up being the big bad oil company that's really causing all the death. Was it a period piece, or is it supposed to be modern day? Uh... It was modern day, and it was actually based on a book that was a continuing crime-solving... It, like, it was written for a Mexican cop, so I don't know how <laughs> they wound up with Charles Bronson, the 70-year-old reporter, but it ends up feeling like an episode of Murder, She Wrote. Honestly, it, like, the wrap-up is like, he punches one guy. Like, <laughs> nobody dies. There's a couple car stunts, but it did dismal at the box office. It was not a hit. He did one more about child prostitution from Japan, this Kanjiti. I think anytime you have a name that people don't know what it means, they're not going to go to the theater to see it. And by this point, Charles Bronson is not somebody that people pay top ticket price to go see in a movie theater. I think he was pioneering the way for straight-to-tape kind of entertainment. And so his stuff rented well, but it wasn't doing well at the box office. And consequently, by 1989, Cannon Films went kaput. And Golan and Globus went their separate ways. Yeah, it was like a divorce. We talked about it way back with our Captain America 1990 review. I have to say, though, Golan got the better side of it. He ended up taking a lot of canon scripts and canon projects, creating 21st Century Film Corporation. Take that, Fox. You're 20th Century. <laughs> yeah, not 20th Century Fox, but 21st Century Film. I'd like to point out the company folded before the 21st Century started. <laughs> <laughs> but I saw a lot of their films. I mean, they really, in the late 80s, early 90s, they got me. I was... In theaters for the Phantom of the Opera, thinking I was seeing something else. And my father went thinking it was Andrew Lloyd Webber. <laughs> I went knowing it was Freddie. Yeah. Robert England is actually the Phantom of the Opera. And yeah. Oh, wow. It's incomprehensible. And there's no resemblance to any Phantom of the Opera I've ever seen or read. No, it's got some good special effects, some good makeup, a really bad Robert England performance. I'm going off my memory of seeing it one time in 1989, but it was pretty bad. We've reviewed a couple of 21st Century Films movies, the remake of Night of the Living Dead with Tony Todd in it, directed by Tom Savini. Yeah, it was the one in color. Whoop-de-doo. And then, of course, Albert Pune's 1990 Captain America yeah, that was a uh, pretty bad. It was a step up from Red Brown. So in that respect, it was a success. <laughs> I'm just wondering what got you into theaters as you list these titles. <laughs> none of these titles would get me into theaters. I will say Golan did make the better of the two Lombada dance movies. If you saw The Forbidden Dance, it's total Brown Arrow territory. You can't believe how crazy that movie is. I did remember how crazy it was that two Lombada movies came out <laughs> at the same time. Now I know why. Yeah, I really wondered. I mean, I was just enough into film. Film in the very late 80s that I was following director names and things, but I wasn't following companies. And so when two Lombada movies came out, I'm like, how did I miss this new dance craze? I live in Florida where dance crazes start, especially Spanish dance crazes like Lombada. How do I not know about this? It wasn't until I watched that canon documentary I mentioned last podcast that I realized it was just a spat. It's like a divorce. You know, we're going to deal with a divorced couple that had a 
bad falling out in this Death Wish movie, I feel like it could be based on Golan versus Globus in the way that they just went from owning a company together and having each other's backs to being the bitterest of rivals where we're both going to make Lombada movies. Like, that's a good idea. <laughs> Neither one did well. And yeah, I yeah, I think, honestly, from what I could gather, Globus was the one people respected more. He was more of the money man. He was a little bit, I mean, a little bit more uh, financially responsible. Menahem is, he's the dreamer. He was just the crazy one that's going to do it at all costs. And he was the one that actually directed films. He had a script. The director and the screenwriter of Death Wish 4 put out a script for Death Wish 5. They were going to make it. It was about Fashion Week, right? Yeah, it did involve the fashion industry, believe it or not. And Golan wanted to do it. But uh, he was having trouble. Believe it or not, all these movies you're listing, Arnie, were not bringing in money. And so he <laughs> didn't have a whole lot to bait his star to come back. And Charles Bronson, for many reasons, was done. First and foremost, he was tired of this franchise. He didn't want to do, really, I think, any of the sequels. And I think that he looked at them as being unfavorable to his career. He was also not a big box office draw at this point. And first and foremost, his wife had died. She, her breast cancer resurfaced. She died and he retired for a brief period of time. He said, I'm not making any more movies. And then oddly enough, I, I find this one really strange, but Steve Bannon, yes, the Trump advisor, and Sean Penn talked him to come back <laughs> and do a supporting turn in Penn's directorial debut, The Indian Runner. He played the father of a very young Viggo Mortensen. <laughs> you sure he didn't play like the grandfather or great-grandfather? Because he is in his 70s at this point. <laughs> yeah, he was doing a few other TV movies, so he was kind of working, but he was not really working. He was not making movies. And so why Death Wish 5? Well, I can give you five reasons. Are they each a million dollars? <laughs> yes, you got it. Menahem said, okay, we'll do it. You'll get five million for Death Wish 5. And that was a bigger payday than Bronson ever got in his entire career. That was an enormous amount of money that he just couldn't say no to. And so... Yeah, he came back and apparently was actually very involved. Like this script, a lot of it was rewritten by him, that he had a lot of fun. He said that he looked at it as a self-parody, that he was going to have fun. I did suspect that he had some involvement because I think he has the most lines of maybe all the other Death Wish films put together in this one film. He just talks a whole lot. Not a whole lot of shooting, but he does a lot of talking. He had become more anti-gun. You know, when he was given the idea of the first Death Wish, he's like, I'd like to do that. Shoot criminals. And now he's like, I don't want to be so <laughs> bloody. I don't want to be so violent. I'm an old man. I'm two years away from death myself. There was a Simpsons joke about Death Wish 9, which was Charles Bronson in a bed saying, please let me die. Please yeah. let me die. <laughs> so he's nearing there, and you can definitely see this one has a lot less gunplay. Nobody gets a rocket launcher shot at them, but there is, there is a body that catches on fire. There's a little bit of death in here and some blood, but he wanted it turned another way. And they did have that older script, but after you gave Bronson $5 million, it cost too much to do. Now, Golan wanted to direct this himself. Yes. He was busy doing a different film, though. Well, 
That's the official story. What happened was, was that Bronson's, one of his conditions was, I'm not working for Menahem and I'm not working for Michael Winner, who was also free to do the movie. <laughs> Strangely, according to what I read, Michael Winner says he was asked to do four. Oh, and yeah. Turned it down. Yeah, which he's lying. And he thinks he wasn't asked for five because. Yeah, this is a man saving face. I understand. <laughs> I know what lying is. No, he was not welcome back. Everyone hated him on the set of three. And Charles Bronson said, if I'm going to do it, I am not being directed by Menahem and I'm not being directed by Winner. So they went down the list and who they could afford was a man whose greatest credit was that he wrote Rooftops. Do <laughs> you know what this is? No. No. No, no. Of course, no one does. Poor Robert Wise, Oscar-winning director of West Side Story, at the very end of his career, when he was on Death's Door, was asked to basically virtually remake it for the 80s. We all remember Rooftops, where it was like singing, dancing, street gangs again in 1989, and it starred Jason Iron Eagle Gedrick. <laughs> wow, you're talking a different language. This is his biggest credit, okay? This is uh, the director, Alan A. Goldstein's claim to fame at this point. He had also done some theater work and had filmed some stuff that was, it was cool, but I mean, that doesn't get you a movie. I think that he was affordable and he had met Bronson and they had worked on another project that didn't end up getting made. And so there was a relationship there and... He said yes, and and Bronson liked his ideas. They concocted the script to be goofy. They had solidarity in turning Death Wish into a parody of itself. And the one thing I did like is reading that at this point, Bronson just wouldn't even speak with Golan. And so Goldstein describes his role as primarily ferreting messages back and forth like like again an old divorced couple well you tell golan that i'm not going to use a gun <laughs> golan he says he won't use a gun all right well you tell him that if he doesn't use a gun i'm going to cut his pay he says he's going <laughs> to cut your pay all right i'll use the gun twice uh, he says he'll shoot twice i mean this is what i picture is yes. like an episode of different strokes or facts of life when Rudy has to go room to room to negotiate a truce between Blair and Joe. Yeah, and as Arnie was getting to, Menahem decided he would go and direct his own project. Something that I'm scared to see, but kind of feel like I must. An adaptation of Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment. Oh, yeah, I read that on Wikipedia, and I just, I cannot believe it. I love that book. It is one of my favorite yeah. books. I can't believe that Golan did a version of it, probably with no money. With Crispin Glover. Yeah, I can't imagine what that would be, but I, if I ever see it, I'll put it on Facebook. I'll tell you all about it. <laughs> if you can find it, I mean, keep in mind, this movie we're reviewing came out in 94, so it was made in 93 or 94. This crime and punishment film didn't get released until 2002, and then, according to Wiki, quote, the release of the film has been restricted by legal matters that left it seized in a bankruptcy lien. <laughs> so you may not even be able to find it. Probably for the best. YouTube has it. YouTube has everything. Probably for the best. But anyway, I think I can suspect how good that movie is. But we're not here to talk about crime and punishment. We're here only to talk about punishment. <laughs> Arnie, why don't you give them the plot of Death Wish 5 and uh, we can get through it. Can we? Paul Kersey, played for the final time by Charles Bronson, is back in New York 
or some city. Is it Toronto? It- it's a soundstage in Toronto, yeah. It does not look like New York, but I think it's supposed to be New York. And he's now, for reasons never explained, in witness protection. <laughs> I don't know how it is that you can shoot up half of L.A. and you need to be protected. His new alias is Professor Paul Stewart, instructing architecture at a collegiate level. Good name. <laughs> He's dating Olivia Regent, played by Leslie Ann Down, a fashion icon <laughs> with a young daughter named Chelsea. Because all those fashion icons really gravitate to a 72-year-old <laughs> architecture professors. <laughs> I looked this actress up because I'm like, oh, is she like 62? Nope, she is like in her 30s in this. Yeah, it was uh, Bronson's personal request to get Leslie Ann Down. Another condition. <laughs> I hope he did get Leslie Ann Down. <laughs> things are going well between the two and early in the film paul and olivia get engaged which can't be good for her lifespan (laughs) olivia's ex-husband is mobster tommy o'shea played by michael parks just a couple years after twin peaks a year or two before from dusk till dawn despite their divorce o'shea owns part of olivia's clothing business and is using it to launder money that he gets from other businesses in the fashion district through protection rackets. And <laughs> he grabs a lady in a fur coat and shakes her down at one point. <laughs> General thuggery, I guess. <laughs> it's really brutal. It's tough out there in those mean streets. When O'Shea's goons pull a revolver on Paul, we think we know where this is going. But there's a twist. Paul doesn't want to be a vigilante. I don't think he wants to be on the set of this movie. (laughs) So instead, he talks to the district attorney in charge of his witness protection, Brian Hoyle, played by True Romance's Saul Rubinick. Hoyle convinces Paul that Olivia should testify against O'Shea. But after Olivia agrees, O'Shea's main goon, Freddy, corners her in a ladies' room and smashes her face into a mirror, threatening to kill her if she decides to testify. It's a drag queen with dandruff, but we can't even get into that right now. (laughs) He passes, too. Yeah, no, it's my favorite character, really. O'Shea found out about Olivia because Hoyle's friend, Police Lieutenant Hector Vasquez, is on O'Shea's payroll and eavesdropping on the DA's calls. He doesn't have, like, a wire type. He's literally just picking up the phone in the other room like I used to do to my sister when I was seven. <laughs> Paul figures out there's a rat in Hoyle's office, so he tells Hoyle at home that Olivia will still testify. But Hoyle tells Vasquez to send cops to protect Olivia, and this brings Freddy out again, and this time he kills the fashionista. And with Olivia dead, O'Shea also takes full custody of Chelsea against the girl's wishes to stay with her grandpa step father paul almost stepdad (laughs) yeah paul now realizes how useless the cops are so he gets his guns his remote control soccer ball (laughs) his bombs and his cyanide (laughs) and goes after all of o'shea's goons he kills them one by one including dropping o'shea in a very poorly regulated vat of acid (laughs) it's in the middle of like a whole like seamstress loom okay seems very hazardous there's no guardrails there's no warning sign do they need that in the fashion industry i don't know i didn't remember an acid pit and garbage pail kids when they were making garments you know it was the 80s there was pots of acid everywhere it's not it's the 90s oh you're right <laughs> we cleaned up 
all of our acid by then. Yeah, that should have been long gone. Paul rescues Chelsea, and both the cops and DA look the other way as Paul walks off into the shadows saying, if you need any help, give me a call. And credits roll. Oh, they need help, all right. But I'm not sure it's the kind of help that Bronson can give. Yeah, it's 72 years old. If there's one thing you shouldn't be sending Charles Bronson to do, it's to fix Fashion Week in New York. This is a terrible, (laughs) terrible idea. Are you kidding? This is a wonderful, wonderful idea. I'm thinking immediately I'm going to get at least one green arrow up by all the nudity that launches this film. I'm like, did I put in a porn? And we don't have to have any sexual assault here to get them. No rape in this film. Yeah, I do want to celebrate that. As silly as this movie is, they at least take a big veer away from all of that grotesque sexual assault that has really muddied some of these sequels. And I think that's Michael Winner not being here is a big part of that. Winner left, rape left. I mean, you tell me what you think. Yeah, I agree. And so this is, I dare say, a wholesome death wish. (laughs) It's got kids in it. It's got Chelsea. They might have known that Bill Clinton was going to be president by the time they were filming. This feels almost like a remake of the last one, though, because we have Paul again with a woman, again getting engaged, again with a daughter that the woman has and again having to avenge the death i mean the last time it was the daughter who died first this time it's the mother who dies so yeah they can't kill chelsea because chelsea is actually the pawn between villain and victim that we will find out that olivia regent before she was dating 72 year old architecture professors was actually dating irish mobsters i mean with only italian hitmen that he runs around that's the thing i thought oh okay they're just doing the boring old italian mobster thing oh no tommy o'shea okay this is an irish gang they got some great no then they're gonna have characters getting cannoli like he runs around only with (laughs) italians yeah that's the least of this movie's problems but yes the consistency with stereotypes is very poor (laughs) but i was surprised to think about starting off on a model runway i'm just this is not where i expect to see paul kiersey hanging out no and it is so cheap that back room you know what i'm reminded of is some of the sets from the 80s movie the stuff where like the bad guys hung out and they had the tank full of piranha that just looked so obviously like a cheap ass set that's what I'm feeling here is that it's cheap. Yeah. Yes. And tell me if you guys had this problem, because first of all, I had a problem finding this freaking movie. It's not available streaming anywhere. It's not available to rent. You say you can find everything on YouTube, Jacob. You can't find this on YouTube. I ended up having to buy used a DVD. And then when I got it, it's freaking full frame <laughs> and has no bonus features except interactive menus. Mm-hmm. And the audio on this movie is shit. Like yes. they just, whatever they filmed in the room, that was the audio they got. There are so many times I had to turn on subtitles because just background sound, the sound of a fan. There's one scene that if, if we were recording a podcast and there was a background noise as bad as this movie has in the podcast, that part of the podcast would be cut and we'd <laughs> either get together and re-record it or The listeners would just never hear it. It's on the cutting room floor forever because it has such shit audio. It's in this movie! Yeah. That's interesting because I had a widescreen copy that I watched this on. 
I didn't notice a whole lot with the audio, so maybe mine was better. But my wife, when she was watching this, whenever Bronson would talk, she's like, his voice just sounds off. He sounds higher pitched. I'm like, I don't know. Maybe it's because he's old and he's sick. He's about to die. But she definitely did notice some stuff with the audio. I didn't pick it up. Yeah, well, I got the same version you did, Arnie. I found the movie very easy to get. I walked over to Arnie's house and brought his (laughs) copy. Thanks for picking up the tab. But I'll say another compliment here that, yes, it is more wholesome and that makes it more fun. I also think they're blessed with a very good villain. Yeah, Michael Parks knows he's in a crap movie, but isn't (laughs) going to let that get in the way of him chewing up whatever they will call scenery in this movie. I agree. I said it last time. Bronson's the worst part of these Death Wish films. He brings very little. They mostly succeed based on their villains, how much they're willing to chew up that scenery. And I agree. Tommy O'Shea here is a fun villain to watch. Yeah, I actually like him. I did not recognize Michael Parks at first. I actually thought it was Eric Roberts with that haircut with the bangs and how Eric Roberts looked tall and gaunt and menacing in the early 90s. I thought it was him for a while until I looked him up and went, oh, yeah, it's the French guy from the last season of Twin Peaks. Yeah, a character actor who he just shows up and stuff. My mom was convinced. I watched this with my mom. It's the first one I've done since the first one. And she was convinced he was a Bond villain. I'm like, nope, but he would have been a good one. <laughs> yeah, he, he has that quality about him. And he plays it that way here on this very shambling, silly little movie. And yeah, he's got a couple goons with him that are... So stereotypical. You got the one that's always sucking on the lollipop. I'm waiting for that thing to get poisoned. That never happens. And you got another one who's taking the blood pressure pills. I'm waiting for those to get exchanged for poison. And that never happens. (laughs) I actually thought he was just going to have a heart attack. Like the stress was going to get to him and he'd have the ironic death where he's never killed. He dies of natural causes. Yeah, I agree. They seem to be setups for things that don't pay out. But... Yeah, I couldn't tell where this one was going. I mean, I know we're in a Death Wish movie, and I know that, yes, if he is romantically attached to a woman, she's going to die. If she has a daughter, she's going to die. But what complicates it, what makes it interesting, is this is the villain's daughter. So would he really have her killed? Turns out, no. It's an interesting conundrum, because he doesn't really seem interested in being a father, I see him using his daughter Chelsea as a pawn against Olivia, and yet, at a certain point, it becomes the only thing he wants is to have the daughter. O'Shea's girlfriend says, I didn't realize you felt like that about her. I'm like, I didn't either. (laughs) (laughs) True enough. And again, the whole idea is that he's going to be making money by cooking the books. He's there to shake down Big Al, a man that looks like he has no place in the fashion industry. He's running a sweatshop. I mean, so he does have a place. (laughs) Yeah, it's literally underneath the fashion (laughs) show runway. That is what's hilarious. Yeah, every fashion runway, you got the shop right there. So (laughs) if those buyers want the clothes, you just whip them up right there with your slave labor i've been in the garment district in new york city and i didn't see any runways yeah and the thing is like he's mad that like they're moving more money than they're moving clothes so the solution is to take clothes and throw it in the acid bath to try and make them disappear i mean this is obviously a movie that announces we're not taking these villains or the situation very seriously nor do they understand laundering money (laughs) 
yes, you don't actually take it to a laundromat. But I actually think that they were laundering money successfully. They're saying that they sold the clothes and so this money came in legitimately. That's how you do it, is you pretend it came in through a legitimate venture. And they're saying, melt the clothes, put it on the books saying you sold them, and that's where this money came from. And of course you're going to have Chekhov's acid bathtub in this movie how do you think they acid wash jeans if they don't have a vat of acid Mm, true although not the 80s again we're beyond that it is kind of fun in in a brown arrow kind of way to be in the fashion realm they don't play with it enough it's the surprise once we move away from this we're going to spend very little time consulting tacky dresses and you know skinny models on heroin none of that is a satirical target here it's mostly about, yeah, Paul just being boring, and we're told he's a professor. We see him teach no classes. He's mostly kind of sitting around a log cabin. That is what's weird. I'm assuming this is supposed to be New York. I guess he lives in upstate New York or something in this log cabin. Yeah, it does feel like it should be somewhere else. There are street signs you will not find in the United States. I wasn't sure if this was filmed in Canada or Europe or something. It was filmed in Canada. I know that. Toronto, for sure. But there are some, like, street signs that I've never seen this side of the border. But I think it's supposed to be New York. And one thing I'll give the series credit for, I love how he ping-pongs coast to coast. East Coast Tribe, West Coast Tribe, there's a Death Wish movie for you. (laughs) Yeah, I'm convinced they've now erased the last movie, and this is a sequel to Death Wish 3. (laughs) Who can keep track? The point is... He's going to take her out, produce a ring. We know the second that she accepts his proposal for marriage, she's dead. And sure enough, literally, like that second, she goes to the bathroom and gets beat up. (laughs) Well, yeah, because Tommy comes in with his entourage. She gets nervous. And that's why she goes to the bathroom to hide from Tommy. We've seen Tommy bruise her at the beginning of this. He has no problem getting up in her face and interacting with her. Yeah. And it was confusing that Tommy is introduced as having two goons. One was the big guy because of the audio problem, Arnie. I know that he picked up evening wear at one point and said something. I thought maybe he was the one wearing the dress when we get this attack scene, (laughs) but that's Chicky. And the guy coming in here is Freddie Flakes. Yeah. And Freddie Flakes, because he has dandruff, hence flakes. And this whole thing is so surreal because you've got Olivia there getting engaged. Literally one table over is her Goomba ex-husband. He's Irish. He just has Goomba. Yeah. (laughs) Security. And he pours a drink on somebody else at his table. I'm thinking to make a spectacle so he has an alibi so that no one can say he beat up his wife. But they're all at the same restaurant. If you want an alibi, don't you go to a different restaurant? And if you're an abused ex-wife and you walk in with your boyfriend and see your abuser ex-husband, don't you think maybe tonight's the night for Pizza Hut takeout? (laughs) Yeah, I felt like this was just showing that Tommy's a funny guy or something. I don't know what it means when he knocks that glass on one of his goons. What really confused me, when Freddy walks into that bathroom, he locks it, he is in drag, he's acting like a serial killer. I am going to take your face. I thought this was totally unrelated to Tommy O'Shea. I'm like, what? We're going to get a weird, like, Hannibal Lecter serial killer storyline in this film? I'd love this movie to go into face-off territory, and he literally <laughs> takes her face as part of his leather face drag fetish. Again, I thought I was connecting him with a character we had seen before, but this is the introduction, and and the fact that he works for Tommy comes out in a really sloppy way later. But I will 
will say this. It's a pretty good stunt, the way that they did it. Apparently, that's really the actress going up to that mirror. They had someone behind it with a hammer. So she would get really close, and then they hit it. But it, it looks effective. When she's being thrown into that mirror, I believe it. I never questioned how they did it. I thought it was kind of effective there. I mean, I'm trying to think, though. I mean, if, if Donatella Versace had her face mangled... Would her dresses not sell? <laughs> My question is, if you have your head smashed into a mirror, do you wrap it up like a mummy at the hospital? <laughs> yes. That seemed a bit extreme. <laughs> no, no. You immediately, especially if you're in the fashion industry, call plastics. If you were ever have a facial <laughs> laceration and you're in the ER, request plastics. I speak from experience. Do not let the general surgeon on call come in to sew you up unless you want to look like a horror movie freak for the rest of your life. You get plastic in there to hide the scars and fix you up. But to Bronson's credit, he is going to stay. The wedding is still on. He still loves her. He's still going to nurture her. He is not even going to pursue these guys for brutalizing his wife. He's going to encourage her to testify against them, to use the court of law, to use the system of justice he never subscribed to throughout his life of vigilante justice. That said, he does give her a little bit of a look and a little bit of a sigh, like, my beautiful wife is gone. I'm staying with you, but... I don't know. I feel like those are just scratches on her face that are going to heal pretty well. I, I didn't feel like this was, you know, in the Punisher war zone, like ch chopping up Jigsaw's face and really scarring that thing up. I don't know. The cat got to her is what it looks like. <laughs> uh, you know, there's no money in this budget. With $5 million going to Bronson, <laughs> I think they had less than a million for the rest of the production. So you get what you get. The makeup people are taxed to the limit here. But yeah, it's not very convincing disfigurement. And it doesn't even matter because very soon... She's going to be targeted for murder. Yeah, and, and that's all because there's a snitch in D.A. Brian Hoyle's office. Now, when we're talking about this movie having people who would later be someone, we've talked about it in all the movies, is Michael Parks or Saul Rubinick are going to be? I feel like they're already kind of someone. I, I feel like that's a slight against this film, is that there is no up-and-comer. I was trying to think because at this point, Saul Rubinick had been in stuff. Unforgiven. Well, I mean, I'd seen him by this point on an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation where he played a person a lot like the Collector from Guardians. The epitome for me, for him, is true romance, but he did several seasons on Frasier, and he's a guy who just works, you know? He was on Warehouse 13, I'd see him in a ton of ads on sci-fi. So, to me, I was excited to see him here, but he often plays a weaselly kind of guy. So I thought he would be the turncoat. I was really certain Saul Rubinek would be the one who was actually evil. But no, it's his friend who we actually see coming over for dinner one night, Hector yeah. Vasquez. Well, that's how you know. It's like, well, here's a character that's helped you get into witness protection and wants to prosecute the villain and all of that. And here's his assistant who's just hanging out for no good reason. <laughs> who could the rat be? I just put this together. So we're going to have a scene where Albert gets a wire to try to get O'Shea's goons to admit to some kind of crime. Vasquez is the one that rats him out. Is that what happened? Because they seem to know that Albert's just carrying a, a pen microphone on him. Well, first of all, anyone can tell that that's a wire because it literally has a giant wire yes. coming out of the <laughs> pen. So no real fool there. But yes, I do believe that the inside man in the DA's office is the one that Tommy is 100% reliant on. I don't think it's these goons that are figuring things out. 
And there's another cop in this movie, another Twin Peaks alum by that matter, Lieutenant Mickey King, who gets like two scenes, but is such an unimportant cop character. But if you remember Wyndham Earl from Twin Peaks, here he is for a couple of scenes. Yeah. I mean, they always have cops in these movies, as we're pointing out. And the idea is to make them look ineffectual. That if the point is, is that Kersey, or now Stewart, I guess I'll call him, is going to reach the idea that he has to go back to his old ways. He needs to see a bad cop. And so here's a cop that has been investigating Tommy O'Shea for 14 years and has not been able to arrest any of these guys, even though they're running people down in broad daylight. Yeah, I think this is the biggest laugh for me. When they hit Albert, and he flies up. He, Albert's a big guy in this movie. Oh, yeah. He flies up in the air, goes to that window <laughs> at the restaurant. That car is not damaged. I've been hit by a car, and I took out like half of the front of that car. Like, There's no way you hit Albert and drive away with no damage to that car. This movie's action, if you can even call it that, is <laughs> naked gun level stupid yeah and he also had another friend who we saw get put under a giant iron and then shot i mean they're trying to throw bodies in here but again we only care about characters that are personally connected with Kersey. so why we should care about two people that work in her sweatshop it's just a body count and this movie's surprisingly light on that this has got to be the least bloody the least body count of any death wish meanwhile i'm sitting here just pissed that thinking this movie is so incompetent it's not even going to use its acid bath i'm like you <laughs> kill someone in that fashion place why don't you put him in the acid come on i mean i'm like in this movie if you've seen hot tub time machine when the guys are always wondering when crispin glover is going to lose his arm i'm like when is somebody is they're, they're going to go in the acid bath no they didn't go in the acid bath that's me this whole movie come on you got to leave that for the end i realize that now yeah it all pays off it, it is shocking though i don't think paul shoots a gun until like 50 minutes into this 90 minute film i mean he's picked one up he's got one in a safe oh i love it he finally loads a gun and then he uses cyanide Yes. <laughs> yeah, that is a really strange choice. And I know some of that came from early discussions with Bronson bringing him back saying, I don't want to kill people. I want to help people. But I mean, I'm not seeing a lot of helping of the people. He's not in these scenes. I mean, these are scenes where goons are beating up supporting characters we don't care about. And it takes a really long time for even the wife to bite it. But she ends up yeah, going home. She needs police protection. And Paul thinks he's doing the right thing by going to the DA's personal home and telling him in person, get her protection. He doesn't know that the assistant is having dinner that night and can hear it and then run and go tell the bad guys. Yeah, Freddy, I guess, shows up as the cop and Paul saw him coming down the stairs at the restaurant. So I guess that's how he knows not to trust these cops that show up. Yeah, saw him in drag, I want to point out. But yes, yes, <laughs> he has seen him before and I guess he could see what was going on there. I just thought, honestly, he had a sixth sense. He had a bad feeling about it. He didn't trust the badge because he looks twice. And I th thought he was looking at the badge. And that's when he tells his wife, 
use the fire escape. I'm like, how many stories does this house have? It's amazing. She falls off the roof and then there's like another roof or something. <laughs> it's like, I don't know who designed it. Maybe this is his architecture. I don't know. But he lives in the cabin in the woods and she lives in a house with like three roofs. Yeah. And at one point he like hides in the cupboards and then shows up upstairs. <laughs> yes. There's like secret passages. Yeah. I couldn't tell if it was secret passage a la Clue or just bad editing. Yeah, they were proud to say that he did most of his stunts. I think he throws a vase. I mean, honestly, these stunts. Oh, come on. When he when he takes that dive over the ledge, that like glorious slow motion dive. That's not him. But yeah, he jumps in some trash. Yes. <laughs> the stunt double escapes. We must have Paul get away from the crime scene. But he does witness his wife splattered on, I think, one of the roofs and realizes not even now that he needs to go kill. That's a real shocker, right? This should be the thing to push him, but I think it's really the fact that they take Chelsea away from him that really pushes him. Yeah, he has this conversation again with Lieutenant King, Wyndham Earl, and they're, he's like, how long have you been trying to catch O'Shea? 16 years. It's a long time to fail. I'm like, all right, he's getting the gun. He's not getting the gun. Yeah. The fiance isn't dead yet. She's got to die first. Uh, yeah. Or kill the kid, but they don't kill the kid. The point is, they take the kid away by force and hit Bronson with a piece of firewood, and now he's angry. And so what's he going to do? <laughs> he's going to poison a cannoli. And I'm watching that, and I'm like, I've seen flowers in the attic. Arsenic's going to take a very long time to kill Chicky there. But no, it is cyanide he's putting on there. I guess you get that in powder form. Okay, literally, I rewound this. Okay, I'm watching this scene. He gets a gun. <laughs> And some bullets. And then we get this montage of him driving and loading the gun and hearing these words about it. And he ends up at the only empty New York cafe in all of New York. I have been to New York so often. You just want a quiet place to have a cup of coffee. You never find a place this empty. But he finds it. He's there reading the paper. And yeah, Chicky comes in as well as Sal. Yeah, they're brothers. And their mother runs the place, and they're like, congrats, Ma, you have a customer. So I'm guessing this is just more money laundering, and that she makes real shit cannoli. And Paul goes up to fill his coffee while Chicky's in the bathroom. Chicky has these two cannoli on the table. I see Paul put sugar on the cannoli, and I'm like, what's he doing? Yes. Again, if you've seen Flower in the Attics, you know... What that's like, powdered sugar on the cookies. I did not see flowers in the attic. I guess you've spoiled that for me. Oh, I didn't even get into the incest. I mean, that's the best part. No, yeah, <laughs> that can't be spoiled. But I didn't catch that he pulled this powdered sugar from the table. And I'm sitting here like, what's his plot? Does the guy not like powdered sugar on his cannoli? Is he going to get mad that somebody sugared his cannoli? And then he starts to choke. And I'm like... What's he choking on? Are we just, it's happenstance? He just happens to choke on that big bite of cannoli? And I rewound the whole goddamn thing. Like, what am I supposed to get out of this? I finally hit wiki and I read cyanide. I'm like, cyanide? How the fuck am I supposed to know it's cyanide? If it was cyanide, wouldn't he be like, Ma, you added some almond extract to these cannoli? I mean, <laughs> nothing tells me cyanide until later on the police are like, looks like cyanide in his system is this death why did we not use a bullet hey my favorite part is chicky's mom just like flipping out 
and running around outside. It is hilarious. Yeah, we don't use a b- bullet because it's more fun to run the headline, Mobster Bites It. You know, they, <laughs> they have these running headlines in the newspaper. I think they wanted to bring that thing back, too. That was a big, iconic moment. In the first movie, he's on the subway, his face hidden by that paper, and then he shoots through the newspaper. They kind of have to do that here with him at the empty table watching above the newspaper while the guy eats the poison. Kind of. Yeah, I know. Barely. But again, these are the things that Bronson himself is coming up with this director. They're having a laugh. They realize this is silly. They want it to be outrageous. If they can't make a good movie, they're going to make a B movie. You just need to show me when he pulls the gun out of that safe that next to it is a bottle of powdered cyanide or something. I just need to see that he has poison to have this scene have any level of suspense or even make sense. Who thought it was funny that in the next scene that Chelsea, the teenage daughter, a tween age, I'd say, she's probably supposed to be 12 or something, listens to her dad like try to get a blowjob, but he can't get it up. <laughs> Oh, yeah. 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 And, and I love the look she gives that model. When she walks out like, oh, no, I, I wasn't listening. to it. It's just such a weird scene. I guess they had to hit that 90 minute mark. I retract my this is for family audience <laughs> endorsement. You're, I had forgotten about that moment. I swear to God, what I got off the daughter's look is my mom got it up for him. I know. It's like <laughs> such a damning look. She gives that model like, oh, I can't believe you can do that. Oddly enough, I didn't even blink at a poison cannoli that that just seems like something you would see in a mobster movie. The one that I'm still scratching my head at, remote control soccer ball. (laughs) The soccer ball? Hey, BB-8, right? He goes to a store and buys it. To which my first question is, who makes a remote yes. control soccer ball? Is it a prank? <laughs> so that when you're playing soccer, you can ruin your brother's game? I don't know. It's got to be like a Lucy and Charlie Brown thing where she's always pulling the ball away. Like, why would you have a ball with a remote control if it's not BB-8? I'm mm. just sitting here thinking about how I, as a special effects man, could very easily make that by cutting a soccer ball open and putting the innards of a remote control car in it. I'm not sure how this is the greatest strategy to break into this impenetrable fortress either <laughs> that Freddie Flakes is hiding out with his girlfriend. But yeah. Another nice titty shot. Why he's using his medicated shampoo to get rid of his flake. Like, I do find that funny. Like, it's such a weird thing to just throw in detail to throw in. <laughs> he's got dandruff and he's scratching. But come on, Freddie, you're not very smart. You pick up that remote control soccer ball and you don't realize how heavy that thing's got to be, that there's something inside. You just think it's still a ball. Yeah, I don't know. No more flakes. You know, they're trying to make Bronson funny, but uh, I don't know. Hey, buddy, I'm going to take care of your dandruff problem for you. I will give it this. That full body burn goes on for a while and is pretty good. I mean, Freddie Flakes puts on about 50 pounds as soon as he catches fire, (laughs) but... Man, that is a good face burn of some actor or stuntman going down to his knees and hitting the ground. That is probably where the money that should have gone to audio equipment went. Yeah, and it's fun. Like, I I do think as far as the villains go, Freddy Flakes was the most entertaining. He did the most bad. And so, yeah, that they're going to get the rat at the DA's office by basically shooting him in the... But it's just like the the girl's room. Charles Brunson has a Raggedy Ann and a gun, and he just shoots Hector when he walks in. And I'm just sitting here watching, like, Hector's behind him with a gun. I'm like, Hector, shoot. No, Hector's got to talk. Hector, shoot. 
Hector's got to talk. <laughs> and then finally Paul just turns around and shoots him. I'm like, you dumb fuck. And that is the first time he pulls the trigger of a gun is to kill a cop. Yeah. You almost feel like he should just be inventing like Home Alone style deaths or, you know, like <laughs> booby traps or something like get the toys involved. Right. Like that's his new M.O. I'm just disappointed that now all that's left are the stupid Goombas. I think Freddy should have been saved for the end. He yes. was the dangerous one. And he was the one he deserves the death he got. But I think he needs to be the final step before O'Shea, because really, I think this is a horrible mob boss strategy, having all the knowledge of watching Godfather films and The Sopranos to have the same man do all your hits. And everybody knows this is the guy who kills for you. You're supposed to spread that out, spread out the accountability. In fact, the mob boss isn't even supposed to be around when those orders are given so that they can't be incriminated as accessory to the fact. So yeah, when Freddy's taken out and then that cop is taken out, I'm like, there's no competent bad guys left. Oh, I I, th I think there's a lot of funny stuff going on. I mean, you keep getting these funeral scenes for each mobster that dies, and this one for Freddy, like that kid runs in and all, <laughs> everyone pulls their gun out. Like, I thought that was a legit funny moment. It yeah. was. Yeah, in a different movie. I feel like they wanted to make a mob comedy or something in these moments. Doesn't necessarily integrate with everything else that's going on, but kind of fun. And I take my fun where I can in a Death Wish 5. But what you're saying, Arnie, is they actually have to come up with new goons. They only had these three. Two of them are dead. Nobody cares about Sal. So they have to get three more Goombas that, like... We've never seen before. Frankie, the bald guy, Angel, the mustache guy, and another guy named Mickey. This movie is so cheap, they can't afford another name. <laughs> I mean, what's weird is, again, at that funeral scene, there's a lot of people pulling out guns. I'm like, oh, Tommy's got like a whole army. But yeah, Paul's only going to have to take out three guys at the end to get to Tommy. I mean, it's the kind of stuff we want to see. It's kind of the Death Wish 3 kind of crazy stuff. One guy gets wrapped up in cellophane, another one in an electrified fence. But it's just because they don't have the budget, they certainly don't have a Death Wish 3 budget. It doesn't feel as gonzo as it needs to, to be funny. I mean, there's stuff with Paul riding around a cargo loader and then a surprise when they blow it up. It's just the mannequin at the wheel. Yeah, which we saw last time in Death Wish 4. He did that with the car in the parking garage. We saw a dirty cop in that one. It feels like they're taking a lot of elements from other Death Wish films and just trying to repurpose them here. But when I saw that forklift or whatever driving... It was Charles Bronson at the wheel. I mean, you saw that long stash. You saw the hair. Yeah, but then he put a mannequin in there. Yeah, then they changed <laughs> it to a mannequin that looks nothing like him. The very least he could have done is weekend at Bernie's a mannequin to look like him. Uh, the very least. I mean, they are doing the very least, Arnie. <laughs> but uh, I don't know. It's not the worst thing in the world, but it isn't enough. I mean, I think in order to get to Brown Arrow territory, you really have to have enough energy and enough budget <laughs> and enough uh set pieces to go epic no a lot of this movie is really boring yeah. yes really slow real boring i'm waiting for paul to pick up the gun and he takes forever to do it and it's not the fault of the villains again i really think that michael parks and the guy that was playing freddie flakes really do ham it up in a way that is entertaining, but there's just so many scenes of them lounging around a penthouse, and there's just not enough craziness. At one point, Tommy gets mad at his girlfriend because she makes cannolis, and it reminds them of Chicky. <laughs> you know what he has? He has a paper plate. He can't even throw a plate <laughs> at her. He throws the plate, and it just like goes like a paper airplane. But I am laughing at the end, because the bald goon Frankie... 
I think there was ADR work. I think they got Claw from Inspector Gadget yes. to do his lines. I was like, what the fuck is that? I looked him up because I was like, he's done animated work before. I was pretty sure that he was on G.I. Joe. But yeah, the actor has not. But I think, yeah, they did change his voice. That is Soundwave from Transformers. That's Dr. Claw. <laughs> I just expect him to go, Next time, Kersey. Next time. Yeah, well, that would have been fun, too. Again, as much as you can... If that was the intent, and it sounds like Bronson was on board where he never was with Death Wish 3, this should be a whole lot more fun. We should have a whole more cartoony element to this. This should be the craziest Death Wish of all if Bronson was finally ready to throw caution to the wind and say, make me look like a fool. But it isn't. And I have to believe a lot of that is budget. A lot of that is that we have people like Sal that just are going to conveniently fall into, like, clothes crushers. Is that a thing? (laughs) Yeah, I guess it shreds the garments. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know why you'd want to shred them. Well, you have the acid bath. Do you really need the crusher? I thought it was the mangler. (laughs) Yeah, it could be. (laughs) Maybe you needed some antacids and we could have a whole better movie. Yeah, well, Sal did have antacids, so maybe (laughs) maybe there's a sequel that's involved. But anyway, the, the point is is that we have some kind of climax running around in dimly lit runways and sweatshops, but it doesn't feel very much like a Death Wish movie, and it doesn't even feel like a canon movie. I think the climax, really, they should have gone more Beverly Hills Cop. It should have been at O'Shea's penthouse or something. We should have been in his turf. Like, you took the fight to him. The fact that we're back in this cheapo set, yes, I want the fucking acid bath to be used, yes, but it just makes this whole thing feel lackluster, and this looks like a laser tag arena, really. (laughs) I mean, the fact that Paul catches Tommy because Tommy is chasing Chelsea, and Paul just trips him, and he falls down, and then he cuts his face up with a bottle, I guess, to get revenge for what happened to his fiance. 72 years old, Jacob, 72 years old. And that's not the person who cut up his fiance's face. He already blew that guy up with a soccer ball. They did, obviously, the most of what they could with the budget that they had, but I don't know. Bronson probably should have donated a few more things on his five millions that he was sitting on. It it would have been more fun to see him cut up with more tools and pranks. I mean, at some point, if it were me, okay, and if you were paying me five million dollars... I think I'd rather be paid $4 million to walk away looking good in something than to be paid $5 million to be in an utter piece of shit. I don't know. This is called the face of death. Bronson's on the verge of death. (laughs) Take your $5 million and run. I mean, they were planning a part six and he was going to participate. We'll, We'll talk about that, I guess, after we wrap up here. But you bring up an interesting point. If this were intended to be a finale... Wouldn't you want to leave his wife alive? Wouldn't you like to give this character a happy ending? I guess they leave Chelsea alive. So maybe... To go into the foster system? (laughs) Because he's walking away. He's not going to adopt her. (laughs) Both her parents are dead. That's not good for her. But finally, we get through those three faceless goons. I did like Death by Shrink Wrap. Or that guy doesn't even die. I mean, he... No, he does. No, he gets shot by another goon. Bronson doesn't kill him. He wraps him up. I guess knowing that Sal would shoot at anything shiny coming at him on a conveyor belt. (laughs) Everyone gets punished. There is no escaped bad guy. Unless you consider Paul a bad guy for going back to his vigilante ways. But Mickey doesn't. Mickey the cop doesn't. Kenneth Welsh is like, okay, like every other cop in New York, we'll let you off 
for all of your crimes. Yeah, after O'Shea finally falls in the acid bath, finally, it took so long to get there, he just gets pushed in with a gun. Hey, he needed a bath. Oh boy, these aren't even Arnold-worthy lines. <laughs> they never have been. Again, this is the most Arnold I feel like Bronson's ever been, and it's, yeah, I mean, it's not even Van Damme. This movie sucks start to finish, but I'm going to give it one thing. Knowing that this was Charles Bronson's last time on the big screen, knowing that this was his last time as Paul Kersey, the final shot of him backlit with blue light, covered in smoke, you know, it's a really heroic shot with the beams coming through his legs. It's almost like he's an alien from Close Encounters in that doorway and saying to a cop, Lieutenant, if you ever need any help, give me a call. That shot is worthy of that actor who's played this character so many times. Nothing else in this movie is, but that last shot, if it just hadn't had so many clothes in it, I liked. <laughs> okay, I mean, I guess. I, if you're giving a character an ending, I feel like you could have done more than a freeze frame walking away alone. I feel like he could have been holding the hand of the daughter. I'd like to believe that he could have a wife that wouldn't be executed, but maybe these are too much to ask for Paul. They didn't have the money to go back and re-record the bad audio scenes. I mean, this movie ran out of money. I feel like it freeze-framed at the moment that the footage stopped. And did you guys notice in the credits, there's a song in this movie by Rebecca Del Rio. No. Yes, and I'm like... Three Twin Peaks <laughs> alumni. <laughs> Or Lynch, at least. Or no, she was in the new Twin Peaks, wasn't she? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just couldn't believe it. I never caught where in the movie it is. But sure enough, Rebecca Del Rio. Gotta be one of those runway songs. Mm. I didn't know she did rock. Well, this soundtrack. The, the soundtracks have gotten smaller as well. This is far from Jimmy Page or Herbie Hancock. Her song was called Hey Cowboy, Don't Be Shy Tonight. But guys... Don't be shy about giving this a red arrow. Jacob, Stuart, final thoughts? Jacob. This was never going to get a green arrow. My question was, was it good enough for a brown arrow? Or bad enough, I guess, for a brown arrow? And yeah, the bad guys are a lot of fun in this. Freddie Flakes and Tommy O'Shea really chew up a lot of scenery. My problem is this movie has a whole lot of boring in it as well. One of my big problems, besides all the rape in part two, was you get a lot of Charles Bronson just walking around Skid Row. I feel like this one, he's so old he can't even walk around Skid Row <laughs> no more. He's in that car, just driving around looking at the Goombas. They can't even afford to film at Skid Row. <laughs> <laughs> That's how low this budget is. Too poor for even Skid Row. That's bad. I, I do feel like there might be a good mashup with this and the Garbage Mill Kids with all its fashion industry stuff. Like, that might be the cut of Death Wish 5, The Face of Death I Want. Somehow incorporate that film. I'm always up for a Garbage Mill Kids. We can avenge your wife if we revenge together. <laughs> There you go. Someone do it. Put it up on YouTube. I'll watch it. But yeah, this one, it has a whole lot of boring. Charles Bronson didn't want to be the vigilante anymore. He didn't want to pick up the gun. Well, then don't pick up a role in Death Wish, five or otherwise. That, that's why I'm coming to these films. Uh, only that first one I was serious about. Oh, maybe Paul takes it too far. All the rest. Yeah, I want to see him shoot people because that's what kind of movies these are. And that doesn't happen here. Uh, you get a poison cannoli instead. This is a not recommend. Stuart. Yeah, I want to start with a recommend because obviously no one needs to be told Death Wish 5 is bad. We all knew approaching this, it had to be a stinker. Coming seven years after Death Wish 4, there was just no hope for it. But I did want to find out 
you know, I've been exploring Bronson's earlier career. I looked up his personal favorite movie he ever did. It's called Red Sun. It's a Western from 1971 made in the shadow of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. It's very similar to that, but it partners him with Toshiro Mifune. Oh, really? Who is the star of a lot of Akira Kurosawa samurai films. And it's a really fun movie. If you want to see Bronson good and funny and entertaining and understand why he was allowed to make all of these bad canon movies in the 80s, Go hunt down Red Sun. I wouldn't call it his best film by a long shot. It's not up there with Once Upon a Time in the West or Magnificent Seven, but it's very entertaining and proves while Charles Bronson is fun to watch on screen, something that Death Wish 5 can find no reason for. We've talked about it, I think, through this entire series, but yeah, he's doing it for a paycheck, and he's the only one that's enjoying Death Wish 5. And for me, I've given a pass. Green, brown... A mixture of the two that looks like chocolate pistachio ice cream shake. But this one, I could tell very early on. The quality of the script, the quality of the acting, and the quality of the action cease to matter when you have production values so amateurish. And I was again reminded of that Captain America movie, or even worse... The Roger Corman Fantastic Four film, where you couldn't understand a damn thing Dr. Doom said because they took away the funding before they could go back and re-record that actor's dialogue and put it over. So what you actually heard was the onset dialogue of a person underneath a big metal mask. That is what we're dealing with here. This is something, this went to theaters. I was not aware of that in 94. Well, technically it went to 200 theaters. Okay. (laughs) I didn't know about this one ever coming out. I didn't know there was a Death Wish film after the 80s. I knew there were five, but for some reason I just thought like the fifth one came out in 87 or something. That's when my awareness of this series died. And the series should have. But... Beyond that, I think there is brown arrowable stuff in here, like the blow-up soccer ball and the vat of acid and the cannoli. Just a few tweaks here and there, and then re-recording the audio and actually giving this thing the money to feel like a professional production. Which you could do with my Garbage Pill Kids (laughs) mashup version. (laughs) Then this would be brown arrow. I really think it's on that verge but it's just so unwatchable in its current format. I was pissed by the lack of care shown to this final release. It really does feel like somebody took excrement and sold it to me as a DVD. I mean, just that level of care is given to this production. I'm sorry that this is Charles Bronson's final note. You know, this is a man you've just talked about his early films. He has a long career and The Death Wish films, I don't think have ever been his high point in it. Mm -mm, No. But I think he did some good things with that first one. And I think he came to embody the role. You know, I don't know that he ever gave his all. Maybe he did, but that was all he had to give at this stage of his life. But I'm sad that this is the final note for him. Well, it didn't have to be. There was plans. I mean, come on. We're talking about Menachem. He's like, oh, Death Wish 6, the new vigilante. The idea was that Bronson would come back probably for just a cameo to much like the next Karate Kid. Mr. Miyagi was in that one, right? 
Yes. Yeah, the, with Girl Karate Kid, yeah. They dance. Yeah, Bronson would just come back maybe to hand off his gun to somebody younger like Michael Dudikoff from a canon movie series, and they would continue on for endless sequels. And why that didn't happen was mostly because 21st century just didn't last. It just went bankrupt, just faster than canon, and they could just never get it going. If they didn't have the money to finish the audio for this film, they certainly shouldn't have the money to ever make another. Yeah, again, they had the money, but all of it went to Bronson. That's the sad part, is that they just... I mean, if you could find $5 million for Bronson, you should be able to find enough money to make the rest of the film. Yeah, that's just poor accounting practices. I had read they did another... But the series sat on ice forever, and we've talked about doing Death Wish. You know, when we look at the big franchises... Not many left for us. No, we've done a ton of franchises, and it's like, what are some big ones that are left? And there are always older ones that don't seem to have new installments. There's the Godfather, there's the Man With No Name trilogy, and Death Wish keeps coming up, and we're all like, eh... But the series getting the remake, so let's do it. And it should be out next week, but isn't. No, it wasn't right for Thanksgiving. I gotta say, as much as you may not like your relatives, you don't want to, like, escape them to go watch Mass Carnage. I think March release makes more sense. March 3rd, I hear it's coming out. We'll pick up that installment then. We've taken breaks before. Jupiter Ascending. I can recall instances where things disappeared from the calendar. We had to wait for them. I do think we can wrap it up maybe in this leg next week with Death Sentence. That is from James Wan, the director of Saw. It's based on the sequel book to Death Wish. And so we'll do that next week. And coming up on Friday, we've done reviews of all four theatrical Hellraiser films. Now it's time to go to direct-to-video hell with Inferno. <laughs> the glimmer of light on this one is there was a director that escaped hell and ended up becoming somewhat of a genre filmmaker. I'm not a huge fan of Scott Derrickson, but Exorcist of Emily Rose and that Day the Earth Stood Still remake, he has some cred. So gold donors get to hear that review on Friday. Don't forget, we've already done all five silver donation podcasts of Phantasm. We covered Cult of Chucky for our playing level donation, and now we're just mining the depths of hell with nine Hellraiser films and people who donate now. We're promising whenever part 10 comes out, we'll get that review to you also. And then of course, there's Jeepers Creepers after that. And while we're discussing upcoming shows, don't forget our patron program through Podbean, where earlier this month we released our review of Lego Batman. And if you sign up to be a patron of $10 or more, you're going to get all of our back patron reviews. That's The Warriors, Hook, Coherence, Monster Trucks, Galaxy Quest, Atomic Blonde, The Legend of Hell House, Get Out, and The Lego Batman Movie. That's nine bonus reviews for a pledge of $10. Plus, let's not forget, I'm also doing my Toys for Tots drive that we announced on our Justice League show, where for every new $10 pledge we get between now and December 15th, I'm donating a toy for Toys for Tots. And I'm so happy we had actually a pretty big turnout this past week. I'm getting a big box together. 
I went out on Cyber Monday and Black Friday and just bought toys for the Toys for Tots donation. I'm more than happy to do it, but you can go sign up right now at our Podbean site. There's a link from our homepage. And if you're listening to this on release day on Tuesday, November 28th, we did have a Cyber Monday sale that is extending now until Wednesday because we had a bit of a server outage where all of our back donation podcasts available through Podbean are discounted from 20 to 35% off. That's only going on for a little over 24 hours as of the release of this show. But if you wanted to hear our reviews of Alien, Pirates of the Caribbean, the Spielberg Alien Trilogy of E.T., War of the Worlds, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Jaws, Psycho, Return of the Living Dead, Night of the Living Dead, plus Easter egg shows like Troll, The Golden Child, and Killer Clowns from Outer Space, all of them are reduced in price on Podbean through Wednesday. So be sure to check that out. We hope you can support the show. It's support from listeners like you that allow us to keep going week after week and doing a lot of theatrical releases. I said 2017 was our biggest year with theatrical releases, and now I'm looking at 2018, and whoosh! Didn't help that we added a death wish to the factor. (laughs) (laughs) Every week. At least it feels that way. So Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me. And until next week, your death wish has been granted. I'll be back soon. It's not necessary. It is for me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing's Death Wish Retrospective Series. If they hadn't have broken us up, I would have killed you. Next time, you won't even see me coming. We hope you've enjoyed the show. Are you getting the most out of life? Are you satisfied, fulfilled, happy? For more movie review podcasts, visit the nowplayingpodcast.com archives. <laughs> oh, what a bummer, man. That was the worst fucking movie I've ever seen. There you'll find hundreds of film reviews, including Die Hard, John Wick, the Jason Bourne series, Kingsman, Machete, the Marvel Comics movies, and more. And come back each week for another new movie review. Hope you guys have a good time tonight. Enjoy yourselves, huh? You know where to come back to if you want some more. Now Playing relies on listener support to keep operating. For our podcast's 10th anniversary, we have released over 150 donation podcasts through our Podbean page. I ain't known for my community spirit. Show me some money. Available there are series like The Matrix, the Quentin Tarantino films, Planet of the Apes, Jurassic Park, Aliens, and much more. Give me the money, homeboy. <laughs> Give me the money now. Collection time, Charlie. Collection time. Links to our Podbean page are available from nowplayingpodcast.com. I'm going to beg you, son of a bitch. Please. Please. You can also join our Podbean crowdfunding campaign to help our show grow. Backers of $10 or more will receive exclusive bonus podcast reviews, including Lego Batman, Get Out, Galaxy Quest, Hook, The Warriors, and Coherence. 
A link to our patron page is at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate. My heart bleeds a little for the underprivileged, yeah. Stick them in concentration camps, that's what I say. We want to especially thank our Podbean donors of $50 or more, Joseph Black, Jacob Parkins, Anders Marip, and David Billington. Well, that makes you a preferred customer. Also at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash book, you can order Now Playing's film review collection, Underrated Movies We Recommend. This book has 125 reviews about films you probably haven't seen, but you should. You're a writer. Write about it. Want to take part in the discussion? Join the Now Playing hosts at our forums, where you and other listeners can give your thoughts on this movie review. The links to our forums is at nowplayingpodcast.com. Might amuse you, though. Being from New York, maybe you've never seen a club like this. You can also follow Now Playing on Google+, Facebook, and Twitter. There, the hosts post new episode announcements, movie reviews, and contests, where you can win movies and soundtracks. Can we just all please be civilized for once before I kill somebody? You can also help out Now Playing by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. A link to Now Playing's iTunes listing can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. I'm so glad you wanted to come along. The more people that understand our work, the better. Now Playing's Death Wish series is produced by Arnie Carvalho. You're tough. Yeah, you really are. Just a matter of keeping busy, Sam. Now Playing's Death Wish series is edited by Heath and Arnie. Guard said you were here after midnight last night. Yeah, that's the way I work. Now Playing's Death Wish series credits announced by Brock. I underestimated O'Shea. It's not going to happen again. The Death Wish films, all audio clips and music used are the property of the respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast has not been prepared, approved, or licensed by any entity that created or produced the well-known Death Wish films or novels. Now Playing is an independent movie review podcast with no affiliation with any company involved in the publishing, creating, or distribution of that film or book series. You're not thinking of going back to your old ways, are you? Is that such a bad idea? Let the cops take these guys down. You know, sometimes the law works. And sometimes it doesn't. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. Some people would say that was an extreme position. I don't care. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2017, all rights reserved. And no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. Whatever you little fucks think is important, ain't important. So stop! Stop it right now! Goodbye. At this point, Saul Rubinick had been in stuff, but Unforgiven. He, what? Unforgiven. Yeah, he was in that? Yeah, he was the reporter. Really? I don't... Re- yeah, the reporter guy, yeah. Yeah, he was... Uh, he was uh, Anyway, yeah, he's there. I'm not going to go into it. But yes, he, he is witness to a, a gunslinger that's trying to act like he's heroic and ends up getting the shit kicked out of him <laughs> by Gene Hackman. Ah. Uh.